0: In John 16, Jesus tells us, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In this world you will, not may, not might, but you will have trouble. That's not one of those promises from God that you want to get on a coffee mug, right? From, from the Bible house. Um, and, and it really is a reality check. For those who preach that uh, once you become a Christian, everything is rosy, uh, you're magically protected from anything going wrong in your life. Jesus says exactly the opposite. He says that especially as a disciple, if you are on his side, you will be opposed, period. So then why do you say, Jesus, I've told you these things so that you may have peace? That doesn't seem to be a very peaceful statement. How is that going to bring us peace? Well, Jesus gives us, with that promise, a fact. And it's that fact that that, uh, Acts chapter 27 and the first part of chapter 28 is firmly fixed on. See, Jesus said, yes, you will have trouble, but I have overcome. He says, I have overcome this world. And so even though we are still engaged in the battles against the enemies of God's kingdom we know that the end has already been written. Uh, And this ought to give us courage to face the opposition that our enemy will throw at us. Yes, we do have an enemy. Yes, he will throw opposition to us. There's an old, old story, old preacher story about the devil showing up in in uh, an old country church one day. Uh, It was a Sunday and he shows up and he begins to growl and chased people all around and, and, and they were screaming and getting up and running out, uh, getting into their cars and driving away as quickly as possible. But in the midst of all this chaos, one old man was just sitting there in the pew, not phased not at all. And Satan came right up to him and goes, I'm the devil. Don't you, aren't you afraid of me? And he says, hey, I've, I've uh, been married to your sister for 35 years. There's nothing that you can do to shake me at all. Uh, You you know what would be cool is if we as a church would understand that we are called to never allow our outlook on our life or our outlook on what God has called us to do, to be determined by the fact that we have opposition. Sometimes people say, oh, I'm being opposed I'm going to stop. I'm not going to do anything because I'm being opposed and I don't like that opposition. You know, this is really what Paul is going to demonstrate demonstrate for us in his crazy adventures found in chapter 27 and the first part of chapter 28, that Paul will not allow his outlook on his life and his ministry to be determined by the opposition that he faces. And, and, And by the way, Though we will never, ever, should we ever give our enemy, the devil, more credit than he deserves, we should know that he will be at work. He will utilize the obstacles that are in our life to try to derail us from the path that God has put us on, both as individuals and as a church. You see, God has a path for Paul. In in this last part of of Acts, we've seen it. Do you remember? Where, Where does that path lead? Paul. To Rome, remember? God says, you are getting to Rome. And it's in Rome that the final engagement of the Great Commission will happen. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the world. And it's been happening as they have gone out into the Gentile world. And now the gospel is headed to the center of Western civilization. And when it hits Rome, folks, it's going to catch fire so quickly that it will change the nature of the the Roman Empire. From that point on, the, the Roman Empire will be called the Holy Roman Empire, and Christianity will actually outlast that empire, the empire that once tried to exterminate it. So you can imagine That the enemy, knowing that the gospel is headed to Rome, is going to do everything in his power to stop it from getting there. Now, by the way, as I say everything in his power, here's a side note. Um, the The devil has power, but his power will always be governed, restricted, and put boundaries on by God. You see, the devil is not the opposite of God. It's not like Star Wars and the Force where you get the the dark side and the light side and they're equal in power and they're always battling. You've got to remember, God created Satan. Satan will never, ever, ever hold a candle to God. He will never be his equal. He will never come close to being his equal because we are told that greater is he that is in us as disciples than he that is in the world. And yet, even though we know that he doesn't have the same kind of power that God has, we do see that he has been given a level of influence and a level of of instigation in our lives. And we're going to see in this passage today, Acts 27, how Satan will attempt to use a storm, a shipwreck, and a snake bite to try to thwart the power of God and the plan of God. So let's go to chapter 27 of Acts and see, see where we're going to end up here. Before I read this, I, I need to, to let you know that this story actually has good news, okay? The good news is that Satan's strategy was not successful. Um, that's good, for good, good news for two reasons. First of all, you can make the case that you're sitting here today as a believer because the gospel got to Rome. I mean, think about it. Once Rome received the gospel, people's lives were radically changed. They began to live the life that God wanted them to live. They began to influence other people. And eventually, kings and kingdoms were overthrown. And and people began to have this thirst for a personal understanding of the scriptures. And then there was an expansion of the faith into the new world. And you are a believer because the gospel got to Rome. But secondly, it's also good news that because the gospel got to Rome, it meant that Paul succeeded. He won. He, he was able to overcome the forces of Satan. And if that's the case, so can you. That's the second good news for you. The, the first thing though, we see thrown Paul's way is a storm. Well, let, Let's read uh, chapter 27, starting in verse 1. When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment, and we boarded a ship from Adramidium about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. They are starting for Italy, and they've decided to skirt along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. But we have some problems now. Let, let me ask you, uh, Malia, do we have? Is the next verse verse seven or verse fourteen? Okay, then don't don't go to don't go to the next slide yet. See, there, there's difficulty uh, in the verses that 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 are in between verse two and verse fourteen. Um, they're trying to sail during winter, which is not the best time to sail on the Mediterranean. Paul knows this. He's not a sailor, but he gets it. He's warning the sailors. He said, we, we should not do this. Let's winter here in this safe harbor. But there was cargo on this ship that the owner of the ship needed to get into Italy in order for him to make a profit. And so he pushed the centurion, and the centurion decided to side with, with the boss and not Paul. Well, something hit. Something hit with a fury. Let's look at verse 14. Jumping all the way down to 14, before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island, and the ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Kata, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold their ship together. Fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Syrtis. they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun, nor stars appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Oh, wow. That is some storm. Now, I, I do want to be clear that we are not told that this storm was caused by Satan. Like I said before, Satan's power in opposing us is limited. And, and therefore, we gotta fight against the tendency to give. Satan more credit for the storms in life. I've got a a friend in ministry who every time I would see them, I'd say, how's it going? And they'd say, oh boy, Satan's really got a hold on me. Satan's doing a real number on me. It was always Satan's doing this, Satan's doing that. I I just challenged them. And I said, listen, um, are you sure that this particular storm has been caused by Satan? I mean, sometimes we hit storms because we have done the wrong thing. And it's a consequence to our sin. Sometimes God is putting us through trials so that we build up our strength. Not all storms are caused by Satan. But here's my point. Though he may not have caused this storm, Satan is sure going to use it. Satan will use the storms in our life to knock us off on our footing. He will use storms in our life to tempt us to feel helpless. You see, we take our eyes off of the rock of our salvation, like Peter did when he was walking on the water. And all of a sudden, the waves that were once subdued seem bigger than what they were before, and we begin to to sink, feeling helpless, like the time your company is downsizing. And you know that people are going to be given pink slips, and, and you're not sure if you're on the chopping block or not. Or the times when your marriage doesn't seem to have any chance of surviving because of the fighting and the lack of love that seems to have happened. Or the times that you're sitting at the doctor's office being told that the tests have some abnormalities. Does Satan cause those things to happen? Maybe not. But I do know this. He will work in those situations leading us into this feeling of helplessness. And he can knock you off of your feet in those storms. And so in the storm, my first point today, is in the storm, you must learn to stand, to stand your ground, to stand firm. That's what we see Paul doing here. He knows that he's in God's plan. He knows that he is a disciple of Christ, and Christ has a plan for his life. And so he tells the people on on board that he's had this vision. Look look at verses 21 and following. He says, after the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up, stood up before them and said, men, first of all, you should have taken my advice. (laughs) I I love that. Chance to say, I told you so. I told you not to do this. Uh, Let's go to verse 22. But now I urge you, I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, he says, an angel of, of the God whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, which meant, which meant that he was going to get to Rome. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So here's Paul's message to the to the men on the boat. Keep up your courage, men, For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Paul says, I believe in a God that says that we will be saved. In the storm, learn to stand. Take courage, Paul says. Now, that's exactly the same thing that God told Paul when he was in Jerusalem facing his personal storm when the riots were there and they wanted to rip him apart. He was afraid, but not so anymore. Now Paul is not fearful, and he tells these people that they must take courage as well. He says, God's got a plan. You can't make me afraid, Satan. I won't fall for that one. You see, fear is really behind helplessness, isn't it? Satan's first tactic to oppose God's work in your life will always be to take advantage of your fear. But let me tell you something that I have learned in in the 45 plus years of being a Christian. The storm that will come is not in control of your life. It's not in control of your future. It, It may be what you're going through right now, but it will not determine your future. Yes, the storm can delay you. It can disturb you. It can disrupt you, but it will not ever, ever destroy you. Too many of us give our futures over to these storms that are hitting our life. But let me tell you, you've got a choice, just like Paul did. And that's the choice to stand. And either say, it will be as God says, or it will be as I feared. That's your choice. Are you going to say, it will be as God said, or it will be as I feared? Folks, I, I know what it's like to be in that conundrum And to know that you can put your faith in God, that gives us the strength to continue on in the storm. In the storm, we need to learn to stand. In the shipwreck, point number two, in the shipwreck, we need to learn to swim. They've been out there for 14 days, and finally the sailors sense they're close to land. But there's a danger. Let's pick it up in verse 27. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic. Storm's still pushing them. When about midnight, the sailors sensed that they were approaching land. So they took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. And then a short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. You see what's happening? They're getting closer to shore. And fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed, for daylight. Now, what happens next is is pretty sneaky of the sailors. They pretend, they are so afraid, they pretend to be going down to check on those anchors. But what they're doing is they're getting into the lifeboat to get out of there because they do not want to be smashed up against the rock. Well, Paul knows what's going on. We, We don't know if that's a supernatural understanding or if he was watching them. But he goes and tells the centurion about their plot to, to abandon ship. And the centurion promptly takes care of it, cuts the ropes off of the, the lifeboat and says, hey, if we all can't get in the lifeboat, nobody gets in the lifeboat, forces the sailors to stay on the ship. So then they get the idea of running the ship, not into the rocks, but to find maybe a sandy bay in which they can run aground. And that's what they begin to do. But as they do, it actually tears the ship apart. Look look at verse 41. The ship struck a sandbar, ran aground, and the bow stuck fast. The front of the ship stuck fast into that sandbar and would not move so that the stern, the back of the boat, was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. You can see that the storm is still raging. They were helpless in the storm, but now there's no ship it's broken up. They're not on shore yet. And now they're hopeless. No boat, no hope. Let me ask you, do you find yourself today in a seemingly hopeless situation? Maybe you're at a place where you think, man, there is no way out. Well, let me tell you what we learned here. There's 276 passengers aboard this ship, including crew. 276, and each and every one of them have a choice. They're either going to sink or they're going to swim. I mean, that's, that's basically it. Sometimes you get into a place where you either have to just learn how to swim or you're going to go down with the ship. In the, in, in the aftermath of a shipwreck, there is always a choice. Are you going to let the sea overwhelm you or are you going to keep your eyes open to see where God is leading you? and make your journey by swimming to the shore. Folks, Satan will use your wrecked marriage to drown you in guilt, to think that you have committed the worst sin possible and you will stay away from his people. Satan will use your wrecked financial situation to drown you in self-pity and embarrassment to where you will not ever want to show your face around God's people again. He will use your wrecked relationship with your kids to drown you in bitterness. He will use your wrecked life goals to drown you in a feeling like you are a born loser and can't do anything right. Life will never go, ever, as you planned. Life will never go as you planned. Why? Because sin has entered into this world. And because of that, Jesus said, in this world, you will have troubles. So when it doesn't work out for you, let me ask you this. Has your God failed? Is that the explanation of why life doesn't go the way you want it to go? That you experience these shipwrecks? Or is your faith such that you could say that God is God even in the shipwrecks? That, yes, He designed our life to go one way, but because of sin, we rarely go the way that He wants us to. But He still has power to redeem whatever situation you're in. See, in the midst of the shipwreck, are you going to sink? Or are you going to swim to to turn your eyes to where God is working and leading? Anytime I wanted to throw a pity party for myself when I first became an adult, I would call my mom. I don't know why. I I would want her to commiserate with me. Oh, mom, I'm lonely. Oh, mom, I'm not doing so well in my ministry. Oh, mom, oh, mom. There'd be a pause. And then she'd say that one word. Well, go, no, mom, I want you to throw the party with me. Come to my pity party. She'd say, well, have you talked to God about this? Are, Are you praying about this? Where is God working in this situation? I'm going, I don't want that. I want I want your sympathy. Well, well, yeah, exactly. Trey, are you going to sink with the shipwreck? Or are you going to swim for where God is leading you? We wallow. We wallow away. We wallow and wallow until we sink and eventually spiritually die. Now, I I love how Paul actually has prepared everybody for this moment. Let's go back to verse 33. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. He says, in the last 14 days, you have been in constant suspense and have gone without food. You have not eaten anything. He's called them on this. You have thrown yourself a pity party. Now I urge you, please, take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. Some of us take that to heart. I don't want to lose another single hair from my head. Please, God. But after he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. And they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. You see, Paul is saying, do not just feel sorry for yourself. Prepare yourself. Get some health. Don't act like this is in the, the, the end of the world. You know what happens when you give up hope? You, you, you stop trying. Uh, an, an experiment was done in the 50s with lab rats. They, they, they took a, a dozen domesticated rats and they put them in the, these jars containing water One in in, in each of the jars, and they watched. And and some rats would swim for just about a minute, and then they would give up and they drowned. And some rats would continue on uh, for another five, six, seven, eight minutes, and then eventually they would succumb as well. Then they took wild rats and did the same thing in, in 12 jars, and within minutes, all of them had died. They thought that was interesting. Difference between domesticated rats and and wild rats. They, They brought in another 12 wild rats to do this again. And within about 30 seconds of putting them in the water, half of them were taken up out of the water and held for maybe another 30 seconds and then put back in. Again, the ones that were not picked up drowned within minutes. Whereas the ones that had been picked up actually lasted much longer. So what was going on? Well, that hand coming down and lifting them out of the water gave those wild rats hope that maybe that would happen again. So they kept swimming, knowing that there could be a chance that a hand would come down and rescue them. Folks, there's not just a chance that a hand comes down and rescues us. If we are found in God, if we are one of His flock, He comes and rescues us. We need to know that. If we give up hope, we will die spiritually. Paul says, listen, to gain strength, you got to eat. you got to get into the mindset that there's something else to come. This is not the end. God's going to bring us out of this. And so in the shipwreck, you got to learn to swim because God's not done with your story yet. The last thing that we learn actually comes from the next chapter, chapter 28, when we find out where they are. It says, Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. Malta is still an island that you could go to today. The islanders showed us unusual kindness, and they built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. And Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, a poisonous snake, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. Now, being, being very uh, superstitious, when the islanders saw that the snake was hanging from his hand, they said to each other, well, this man must be a murderer, for although he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. They are expecting him to die because of this viper bite. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. So yeah, in the storm, learn to stand. In the shipwreck, learn to swim, and in the snake bite, learn to shake it off. Shake it off. You see, in the storm, we will feel helpless. In the shipwreck, we may feel hopeless. But when that snake bites, it hurts. It hurts. We feel hemmed in. We feel trapped. We feel like we are destined to die. So let me ask you this. Why do we fear our enemy, the devil? Well, part of that may stem back from the Garden of Eden, when God was meeting out the punishments, and he, and he curses the serpent, in this amazing prophecy, in Genesis chapter 3, he says, I will put enmity, hatred, strife between you, talking to the snake, and the woman, between your offspring and hers. Now, some people think, well, that just means that there is going to be this hate relationship between mankind and snakes. Sure. That could be. But there's more, actually, because God's not just talking about physical snakes. He's talking about the ancient serpent, Satan. Okay, and, and, and Satan loves to show up in this form. We see him again in Revelation as this great serpent, this dragon. Why? Because he knows that that will freeze us. It'll freeze us. It's kind of like when I would take my daughter to uh, the zoo and we'd go to the reptile house and every time it would be like she forgot that they're in the reptile house there will be reptiles. And so we are dooba ba ba we're walking into the reptile house and all of a sudden she goes, <gasps> I go, what? She goes, there's snakes. I go, duh, it's the reptile house. Last time we were here, guess what? They had snakes. But that's, that's what Satan does to us. He wants to sneak up on us and go, ha, ha, so that we'll just freeze. But here in this passage, Paul isn't afraid. Why? Because he knows something that I want you to know today. That Satan has already been defeated. Thank you. There better be amens in that. There better be yes, I'm excited about the fact that my enemy is already rendered helpless and hopeless and impotent in in my God's whole scheme of things. You see, Genesis 3.15 continues, and he, the seed of the woman, the descendant of the woman, will crush your head, talking to the serpent. Yeah, you'll strike his heel, but he will crush your head. Folks, this is the very first messianic prophecy. The first prophecy about what the Messiah will do. That there will be a victory that the Messiah will have over the devil. And it's not just a prophecy. It's a promise. It's a plan. And it all came about on Calvary as the enemies of Jesus would, through the influence of Satan, crucify the Son of God. And in that way, it was like the serpent bruised, struck at the heel of the the seed of the woman. But three days later, folks, three days later, the other part of the prophecy came true. At Jesus' resurrection, the head of the serpent was crushed. You see, Jesus didn't just say, one day I will overcome the world. He says, take heart, I have already overcome the world. Through his sacrificial death, the power of Satan was decimated. He has no more say in what happens in our life. Oh, he can influence us by using storms and shipwrecks and snake bites. But it's like in basketball when you, your, your opposing team does a flagrant foul. They, they, they wanted to elbow you. They wanted to pull you out. But guess what? They get ejected. They're gone. They're not playing that game anymore. Satan's gonna try to poison us, folks. He's gonna remind us of our past. He's going he's to show us all the ways that we fail him in the present. But as a famous bumper sticker once declared, next time Satan reminds you of your past, you remind him of his future. Amen? Good. So shake it off. So yeah, you have fallen short of God's glory. You, you, you've sinned. Satan doesn't control your destiny anymore. You still struggle. But guess what? Satan cannot take take you away from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Shaking it off means you're living in grace. You're, You're not living with the devil's accusations anymore. You're not living in ungodly guilt. Too often we allow that bite to set in, to sink in, to do us in. And we let the enemy convince us that we deserve what we're getting the the, the pain that people inflict on us, that we can do nothing about our sinful nature. But let me tell you what, in the book of Revelation, chapter 12, we read of a war that was going on in heaven between Michael and the the, the forces that he was commanding and the devil and, and the forces that he was commanding. And it says this, he, the devil, was not strong enough. And they lost their place in heaven. And the great dragon was hurled down that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. For the accuser of our brothers who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They overcame him. How? By the blood of God the lamb. Folks, that seems to me that the timeline went like this. Once Jesus died and was resurrected, guess what? Satan had no more power over the believer because now we have the authority of Christ, the blood of the lamb. That overthrow means that he can no longer accuse us because the the blood of Jesus is stronger than the sting of sin and death. Let me give you the good news. Satan has no more power over you. Why? Because the Holy Spirit lives inside of you if you were a believer. And he now controls your life as a disciple. So you have need no fear what the enemy can do. You know, I, I hear Christians all the time pray, Lord, bind Satan. Oh, bind the enemy. Bind him. My Bible says in James chapter 4 verse 7, no, 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 you resist the devil and he will flee from you. Oh Lord, take him away. God says, no, I don't need to take him away. Why? Because what Jesus said to us in Luke chapter 10, he says, I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. And that doesn't mean those great snake revivals in the Appalachian mountains, by the way. In context, Jesus had just sent his, his uh, disciples out to do a test ministry run, and they came back excited that even the dark powers submitted to them. So yes, we are aware of his schemes, and if we're caught off guard, we will tend to forget that those strategies are just unsuccessful. The storm, the shipwreck, the snake bite, they, they, they fail in the light of the power of Jesus in our life. And so as a congregation, as individual disciples, we must commit to stand in the storm, to learn how to swim in the shipwreck, and to shake off the snake bite, so that we can firmly plant our feet on the rock and declare, is that all you got, Satan? Really? Do you, do you see what those boots are made out of? Good. Right now, I'd invite the worship team to come on up. I debated about using this illustration, but I think it's actually a very good illustration for us to learn from. We have a family friend named Susan who in San Jose had the unfortunate event happen to her that as she was just walking down the street, an actual flasher flashed her. Okay. And it, I mean, it was like stereotypical, like trench coat and, and nothing on underneath. And, and he flashed her. Now I realized that a flasher, they're trying to, they're trying to elicit some kind of fear, some kind of response where I have power over you. And I don't know what you would do if a flasher would do that to you. If you'd scream, if you'd call for the police, if you'd run, what Susan did was this. She looked him up and down and began to laugh. She literally looked at him and went, ha, 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 The, the guy literally turned around and walked away embarrassed. <laughs> Folks, that's, that's what I want you to see when Satan begins to throw these strategies at you. I want you to laugh at him because he doesn't have power over you as a disciple of Jesus. He, he's lost his power. And so if we if we can laugh at that, we take away the power, you know? He'll say, but I'm Satan. And we go, yes, but I'm a child of God. And have you seen my dad? Let me introduce you to my dad. And he goes, and he goes off. And he has no power over us. But it's not just a one-time thing. You'll, you'll, you'll resist him. But he'll come at you. He's like the Terminator. I'll be back. Which apparently, 40 years later, he's back again in, in another movie. Anyway, he's going to be back tomorrow and the next weekend. The the next month, he's going to oppose what you're doing if you're standing for God's kingdom. But that should not ever determine what we do. Our outlook should not be affected by the opposition. We're getting ready to head into a new year where there's going to be more opportunity for you to grow spiritually deeper and and to be involved in discipleship in in a greater way than ever before. We're going to see miracles happen in people's lives just like there was on the island of Malta after the storm and the shipwreck and the snake bite. And my prayer, more than anything else, is that we would have the wherewithal to keep pressing forward, not allowing Satan to derail us. But as he shows us his power, we just look at him and laugh and say, is that all you got? And let's make some boots out of that snake, amen?